people are sitting on benches with no cushions or backs. They'll be forced to sit there for 17 hours, from 5 in the morning until 10 at night. They will not be fed or watered until they return to their skimpy barracks. Now you ask, why are they here? They're listening to a recorded lecture that is repeated over and over and over again. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Give up. Give up. Give up. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, introducing a new segment, our Donald Trump Howlers of the Week, where we break down <laughs> the Cheeto-in-Chief and uh, his various uh, fibs and hyperboles. First of all, how can you go bankrupt running a casino? I think it's interesting that all the people that talk about family values seem to have a lot of affairs. You know, if we're going to have a businessman in the White House, how about we have an actual good businessman? Talking about Oprah. <laughs> Luke, you directed my attention this week to a clip on the late show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what the clip was? So Colbert basically was responding to this uh, this true, this real howler of an article in The Daily Caller, which involved this conservative writer going to see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and various others speak. And I love this kind of thing. I love when the conservative mind is just confronted with, you know, conservative mind, which is so kind of used to labeling like the most tepid liberalism as like one shade to the right of Bolshevism. Mm -hmm. And they're confronted with like people who are just will happily identify as socialists. And it's, it's great because they can no longer kind of submerge their reaction in these kind of meta critiques. So this writer was forced to be like, you know, it made me understand how, you know, as a parent, I could, you know, internalize the idea that my children deserved like education and healthcare and stuff. Yeah, like, it was incredible. It's, it's great. And so Colbert was ranting about this. And, you know, I actually ha- haven't watched colbert on his new show really at all i don't think like no. just hardly just little clips neither have i i mean i was an admirer of the colbert report sure and sure. i think i still am sure you know? it's a, as yeah. i'm sure many members of uh michael and us nation colbert you know he he ridiculed this piece of writing but then at the end second there but for the grace of god go i you know that god's a socialist right <laughs> Jesus didn't charge the lepers a copay. Look, I'd cure your blindness, but you're out of network. We'll be right back. Um, so applause for socialism on late night American TV. And then at the end, he, he just starts talking about Jesus and how God is a socialist. Now, it's actually kind of a cliched kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, that people will say. But, you know, it's part of this this trend that I'm now convinced kind of is a trend of this normalization. We talked about this last week in relation to Cynthia Nixon. Okay, this kind of normalization of 
you know, the signifier uh, democratic socialism in contemporary political discourse, particularly in the United States. And, you know, on the one hand, obviously, you know, late night comedians or whatever, late night hosts using the phrase and, you know, having it be applauded, you know, that's not, I mean, that's not political power. But it does kind of feel like something has shifted in a, in a country which, where like socialism is supposedly, you know, kind of just totally antithetical to the mainstream values, the fact that it can be spoken about in this way, uh, the fact that it also made an appearance on The View and caused, you know, Meghan McCain's head to explode. Good. Uh, Fully funded public schools and universities. Love it. Paid family and sick leave. Good. Justice system reform, immigration justice, infrastructural overhaul, clean campaign finance, an economy of peace, housing as a human right. Well, I don't know. It was a really successful country. This makes my head explode, which, by the way, I hope Democrats do run a democratic socialist. Do you hope that we win? Do you win uh, the Democrats? No, because I think you'll lose spectacularly, and then I will look forward to election night when I finally get to tell everybody I told you so if you end up running a radical. For Republicans, kind of for the last 25 years, one of the most effective things they've been able to do is paint all liberals, all Democrats as socialists. And now, all of a sudden, like... Seemingly within the last two weeks, it's suddenly not working as well. You know, a, a, another subplot of this that I love is that in the midst of this, as you know, it's really becoming clear. I mean, well, it's been clear for it's been clear since 2016, but it's becoming increasingly, I suppose, undeniable to a certain kind of person that would have rejected this notion before that the dynamism that's to the left of the Republican Party is with progressive Democrats and people that are far more radical than progressive Democrats. Those are the people that can draw crowds. They can go to red states as Bernie Sanders and Cortez did. Um, They went to Kansas, I guess, uh, just, just recently, a few days ago. They can attract the crowds. They've got the dynamism. We saw that, I guess, this week with two events. There was Aussie Fest, yeah, like, real what, what tale of two cities. Yeah, what, what, I, the sort of neoliberal, the neoliberal Coachella. Which, if people haven't read it, they should check out Jamie Peck's yeah. piece in Rolling Stone on this kind of this. Uh, I mean, this thing that I think I saw the poster for it circulating on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I really did assume it was a joke. I think we all did. Um, yeah. I mean, because the poster it was kind of created as like to, to look like a concert, you know, festival kind yeah. of poster with you know Hillary Clinton as the biggest text on it, and then and below Tom Perez, Steven Pinker, Salman Rushdie, <laughs> uh, um, every time Malcolm I, Gladwell. Every time I looked at the poster, like a new delight revealed itself <laughs> because it, you can't take it all in on one glance but there was that event which has been very well documented but there was also you'll probably know what it was called what was that you know behind closed doors event for kind of high-ranking centrist democrats where it was it was their strategy meeting where they were going to figure out okay how are we going to beat back bernie sanders right. and, and this rising socialist tide so i'm, I'm so glad you asked because that's actually where i was going like <laughs> i i think that was the event the one you're referring to i think is the one hosted by third way which yes. is you know whatever the sort of think tanky kind of institute i'm not sure what it technically is that is sort of the in the uk labor parties this thing called progress which is the internal party grouping for like the most reactionary kind of Blairite people. It's like millionaire funded and stuff. This is sort of the American equivalent of that. And it's so funny to watch these people whose entire political praxis, to use a word that I kind of hate and is overused, is trying to sell everyone on the idea that the most mature adult and ultimately the most progressive politics 
are the ones that kind of sound the most banal, that have the least emotional or intellectual appeal, the ones that are kind of just this hodgepodge of like ideas sort of vaguely drawn from the idioms in the right and the left, and that, that obsess over you know, the discourse and uh -huh. respectability and procedure and just getting it getting it back to the place, you know, where, where all of us can agree, which is the privatization of social security <laughs> and endless war and all the rest. It was interesting reading the reports from this conference because they can't, they haven't seemed to come up with any like particular ideas. So their, their line of attack is, well, most people, the silent majority in the country, right. just want peace, order, and good government, <laughs> and they don't like being upset, and they don't like protest. Yeah, they don't. They don't want. They don't want to have public health wanna, insurance. They don't want to think about this stuff. They don't want public health insurance. What they want is to be governed by the sort of norms of the New York Times opinion section. <laughs> but so it's really funny because that type of like centrist tendency gets so confused as soon as it has... I mean, th these are people... It's important to keep in mind like the historical context here, right? These are people that lived through the 1990s and the 80s. They have not had to grapple with even kind of a tepid left wing for decades, mm -hmm. right? They're convinced it's dead. You know, even in the 1960s, that tendency was always kind of a minority in the Democratic Party, although it used to be a much stronger and more robust minority. And pe these are people that are, are fanatically convinced if Bernie Sanders or someone with those politics is the Democratic Party's presidential nominee, it's going to be like McGovern and Nixon. Mm -hmm. Like there's every day in American politics is, you know, the day after the 1972 election or whatever. And so it's really funny, the tendencies, the flailing kind of responses to that, because on the one hand, you have the attempt to just kind of reassert all the same boring politics. And then, you know, as we saw with, you know, in the Democratic primaries in 2016, you then have this attempt to kind of this always often very, un well, always very unconvincing attempt to try to sort of outflank stuff on the left being like, well, actually, the real, you know, progressives are in the center because they're the ones that can, you know, they're the ones that can realize these values. Like, there's this curious kind of dance because they're too chicken to just come out and be like, no, we're corporatists and we believe in a democratic party that's basically a sort of like Soviet of like Raytheon, Goldman Sachs, you know. Mm. So you just get these confused kind of meta arguments. And as the left grows stronger in the United States, I think that's just going to keep happening and it's going to keep getting funnier. It's interesting to see them try to react to Ocasio-Cortez because like there is a lot of excitement around her. And right. there, the there's great, you know, she's she is a great story. And even the media, which ultimately prioritizes a great story, mm -hmm. loves Ocasio-Cortez. Right. Uh, it's like the problem with Bernie Sanders was that he was, uh, was that he was an old white guy. And the problem mm -hmm. with Cortez is, uh, ooh. But she is genuinely quite popular and they don't quite seem to know. And she, well, she's very calls, her, she calls herself a Democrat. Yeah. You know, all the, all the traditional lines of attack. They don't work. And yeah. I mean, she, and she's just an undeniably talented and, you know, mm -hmm. we're watching, um, we were watching her speak in Kansas, and mm -hmm. uh, I mean, she's, yeah, she's got a lot of charisma. But what I find so unsettling about this is, you know, you know what's led to this are, I think, frankly, our licentious culture, and, you know, we've <laughs> moved away from God, uh, and, you know, I don't know if you've been watching the Saturday morning cartoons lately, or if you've been down to the local dance hall, but these are breeding grounds for sex. 
<laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw, I've seen some pretty grotesque things at the soda fountain lately, I'm not going to lie. And, you know, we already saw this in Cuba. We saw this in China. We saw this in Russia. What happens when people say goodbye to God and start embracing their more uh, carnal impulses? The communist takeover. We're seeing it right now in America. Before too long, you're not going to be able to take, you know, your best girl out for a good Christian evening without being, you know, subjected to state-sponsored sermons about Lenin. And frankly, what upsets me so much about this socialist uprising, uh, which frankly isn't even going to amount to anything, is Joe Biden will be president, and <laughs> and you know, then we'll all go. It'll all go back to normal, and we'll all be happy again. Uh, But what upsets me most of all about it is that we've already been warned by a great man, Estes Perkle, (laughs) the writer and star of 1971's If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Another footman that we must run against is the TV world. Are you aware of how much your child's actions and attitudes are controlled by television? The things they wear, the places they go, the things they do are directly related to television. For example, mother, are you aware of what your child is seeing on Saturday morning cartoons? You say cartoons? What could be wrong with that? Have you seen these cartoons? Programs motivated to lead your child into crime, into sex, into murder? Since the advent of TV, the crime rate in some areas has increased 1,000%. Ought you not to be concerned about what your child sees and hears? Do you realize what effect television has on a parent trying to read the Bible? He has a choice to make, either the Bible or the TV program. He soon closes the Bible to watch the program. So none of you will have heard of this movie, which, you know, fair enough. Uh, (laughs) I will admit, this is is the second time I've seen this film. I'm not a... Both times with me. Both times with Will, yeah. I'm not a noob, but uh, I've not seen this film in the company of anyone other than Mr. William Sloan. This was a movie that I discovered... 10 years ago, you know, back before, I think the internet has made it a bit better known, but this was a movie that I blind rented without knowing anything about it from a, a video store in Toronto that's no longer here called Suspect Video. Rest in power. It used to have great stuff like this. And su- you, you, this was a blind rental for you? You have the most exotic blind rentals. Well, it was a particular... For me, it's like, maybe I should try to watch Deadwood. Or yeah. <laughs> it was a particular bootleg DVD label right. that... They had put out Filipino Batman. They put out Turkish Superman. Turkish they, Star Trek? Yeah, uh, yeah. all that was there. They, I have seen that. They put out Skidoo. They put out all the movies that I loved. And I, w- and I just trusted the brand. I think it was called Five Minutes to Live. Again, rest in power. And so I knew nothing about that. Also, the 58-minute running time, very enticing. A real real insight for Michael and Us Nation into the, into the media consumption habits of Will Sloan. And frankly, I this is another reason why I lament the loss of video stores like Suspect Video because would I have stumbled on this movie on the internet? Probably not. <laughs> Imagine me 10 years ago, you know, popping this DVD into my uh, uh, CD-ROM drive of my laptop. I'm there in first year university and I, I just know that I've discovered a winner. This movie came about, it was a, the two dynamic forces behind this film were Estes Perkle, who is a Baptist minister in Mississippi, that surprises me. I thought it was Robert Brisson. <laughs> but the the auteur of the film, the director and the producer, was a man named Ron Ormond, who has kind of an interesting story. He came from a carnival family. He moved into a feature film production. 
He first directed a bunch of westerns, and then in the 1950s, he made a number of exploitation films, which were sort of Ed Wood adjacent. Could you could you actually explain kind of the genre of exploitation films for people that didn't go to Suspect Video? <laughs> Hollywood Studios... They had control mostly over the the major movie theaters, and they were bound by the production code, which was the kind of voluntary censorship arm of the motion picture industry. But there were independent theaters and independent producers who could specialize in, let's say, more salacious subject matter. And they would oftentimes, especially in the 40s and 50s, take their films from state to state, from town to town, almost like carnival barkers. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they would battle with the local censorship boards. And what was the subject matter of these films? Well, many such films were... There was an incredible film called Mom and Dad, which is a bit notorious, which featured the actual birth of a baby. It was like a, a, a sex education hygiene film, basically. But that was kind of the only way you could legally show full frontal nudity in a film. So the producer of that movie, Kroger Bab, would go around and, you know, he would hire actors to play nurses and he would position them at the in the lobby and he would he would say, ah, you know, my film is all about giving people, giving good young Christian couples the information they need to have a healthy marriage or, you know, films like Reefer Madness, stuff like that. Ron Ormond made a film called Mesa of Lost Women, which had a lot of, you know, Edwards people in it that would sort of play at, you know, CD drive-ins. It wasn't, you know, like a sex ad exploitation film. It was just more of a film for undiscriminating audiences. And Right. But this man, Ron Ormond, uh, renounced his wicked ways when he apparently survived a plane crash, and that turned him to Christianity. But, you know, when you've got the carny spirit in your DNA uh, when you've been an exploitation filmmaker for most of your life, it's hard to flush those tendencies completely out of your body. And this movie is absolutely shameless. He hooked up with this guy Estes Perkle and most of the movie takes place at Estes Perkle's church where Perkle delivers a sermon that lasts for the entirety of the film. And it's only, you know, 50 some odd minutes. Mercifully. But he talks about Again, our licentious culture and how it's going to lead to the communist uprising. And we see interspersed throughout a number of vignettes of what this communist uprising is going to look like. A lot of very graphic and upsetting violence, uh, a lot of intimations of rape and sexual assault and, you know, your nice Christian wife being taken out from under you. Uh, children being forced to step on pictures of Jesus and being forced to renounce the Savior. And the central moral dilemma of the film is played out in the story of this this young woman of uh, questionable virtue who... Yeah, her, her, her sinful nature is depicted kind of at the beginning of the movie when she shows up, I guess, late for church, you know, deduct one, you know, mm-hmm. virtue point from that. And she's with her boyfriend who's like, yeah, sorry, baby, uh, you know, I'm a lover. I'm not a, you know, I don't pray to God or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's all she's done wrong. Yeah. She's da- she's dating a non-Christian. But also we see some flashbacks of her with her late mother. And her late mother, a God-fearing woman, is very sad that this daughter isn't, isn't at home, you know, studying the Bible. She's out at the dance hall, which, as Estes Perkle reminds us, is a breeding ground for sex. <laughs> he's, he's the guy from Footloose, basically. <laughs> And eventually she is redeemed at the end. The The sermon makes her realize her sinful ways and she gives herself to God. And she's the audience surrogate, I think. So Luke, did this movie make you reevaluate your own life? 
Yeah, I'm definitely questioning some things that I've, you know, felt pretty deeply, but this kind of, uh, this kind of made me want to turn back to God. And actually, I was hoping after we finished recording, I could ask you a little bit about Catholicism. Well, as a God-fearing man myself, I was very intrigued by the the two kind of visions for the future that (laughs) Estes is proposing. The reality we're currently living in, which is that children watch cartoons on TV and and that's distracting them from their Bible studies. And it's taking them towards communism. Yeah, that has failed. So the two, you know, the fork in the road that we're looking at is on the one hand, communist takeover. Because of all the sex and cartoon watching that's happening, the communists are literally going to come up from Cuba, kill the president. Because of cartoons featuring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Yeah, which I don't know if you've seen these cartoons lately, (laughs) but they're going to kill the president. And, you know, the communist uprising, it's a little bit the... Uh, infrastructure of it is a little sketchy. <laughs> it's a little unclear, isn't it? They just kind of show up, and what I love is in all the vignettes, <laughs> the sort of bemused Southerners don't seem to re- like, it just sort of dropped on them, like these kind of guys in like full commissar outfits are just walking around with like submachine guns and like Kalishnikovs and just calling each other comrade and they're like, uh, what's going on here? Like, yeah, <laughs> like the, the drunken communists in the full regalia. Will, just like will, stumbling into like people's like house in the suburb or whatever. Say, hey, you give me your woman, you know, <laughs> or they'll round up a bunch of school children and say, how many of you have been taught about this Jesus Christ? <laughs> eh? All of you must pray now for candy. You see, he did not give you your candy. And then he sends them out in the fields to work. They must have watched Ricky Gervais' stand-up special. Now, each of these parents was teaching these children Christianity. Imagine being slaughtered simply because he had the audacity to teach people about Jesus. So that's one vision of the future. And then the other vision is you can read your Bible and then you can go to church and uh, you're not allowed to have any sex and you're not allowed to watch any TV and you're not allowed to go dance. Frankly, it's, you know, no better than working in the fields all day. Well, I don't know. I mean, so I've long identified as a socialist and, you know, the dynamic on Michael and us has always been that I'm the socialist and you're the fastidious conservative. So, you know, I champion what this film posits as the dark vision and you and you channel the one that's the light but i think you're bringing me over to the uh god-fearing christian one yeah you're like (laughs) you're like the woman in the film (laughs) so i mean i'm actually going to start by saying something that i like about the film (laughs) i like the kind of handmade quality of it there's a real regional like it's it's quite likable like you kind of get a sense that ron ormond and estes perkle got around and and gathered up everyone at the church and was like okay you're going to play the communist you're going to play the frightened masses you know you kind of a slightly overweight guy with a polo shirt and you're balding you're going to be the guy who stands up for jesus and then gets brutally shot yeah it has this let's put on a show it's like direction by archetype it really looks like it was shot like in a swamp somewhere (laughs) it's got such a like a quality that's so bargain basement you almost have to admire it in the same way that you would an ed wood film or something yeah just like the sheer chutzpah of like making this movie and calling it a movie yeah yeah <laughs> I, I don't particularly want to beat up on the film so much since i like it a lot and it, <laughs> I, it, I want to beat up it, on the it, movie. it's very fast paced and it, it's all killer no filler but i think it says some interesting things which perhaps we can explore i think aesthetically it actually recalls for me some of the more recent right-wing films that we've watched like the dinesh d'souza ones 
you know, I'm kind of fascinated by right-wing kitsch mm-hmm. and the fact that when, you know, right-wing polemicists or demagogues get really fired up and kind of <laughs> ideological, they go in this direction of this really heavy-handed kind of moralism. Everything's really like overly literal so the com so it's like in a Dinesh <laughs> yeah. D'Souza film you know every one of them has a scene where he'll go down to like a basement that'll say like democratic party headquarters on the door and then he opens the door and there's like a file full that's like you know the secret racist history yeah. of the democratic party top secret do not open yeah do not yeah share. and it's like in this film and we see something similar where you know the commissars or whatever are always walking around and saying like you know, we must destroy Jesus and stuff like that. Like, there's no... <laughs> you know, you'd think there would need to be kind of like a popular base of support. You know, I, I don't think Cuba can all on its own take over the United States. And I, they certainly wouldn't spend a lot of time in the Mississippi if they were doing it. Like, really what they would need to do is make communism a, a viable mass movement <laughs> instead of just, like, going to people's houses and murdering them. So this is where I think the film gets actually interesting to me because I think that's kind of intentional is the wrong word because i don't know how much like premeditated this is but i think that when communism is represented in this way when you know these kind of um you know post-mccarthyite representations of like whatever the socialist or the communist threat in the united states um you know the kind of cold war stuff it's always presented you know i mean on one hand i mean at the time you know, something calling itself global communism was a political threat to the United States, a geopolitical rival, etc. But that's kind of weirdly abstract for a lot of regular people. So when you represent the threat, you know, you have to represent it as something a lot more visceral and insidious. And it's kind of apolitical. It's like a disease, Mm. you know. And so it doesn't really make sense to show it as like, a rival political project that's succeeding either by way of, you know, popular insurgency or like military force applied from abroad or, or some combination of the two. You know, you have to represent it as like it's this thing that's like kind of ethereal and around us all the time. And parts of the country are probably living it on you know, under it already in ways that we don't know. It's it's exactly like the far right hysterics around immigration today yeah. uh you know these things were like that peter sweden guy will just like you know i mean this whole genre of right-wing journalism like that that guy and you know tommy robinson and others do where they just walk around just sort of multicultural areas and say racist things and then people are like can you go away please and then they're just like christian society is under assault like you you can't even hang a like a swedish flag or whatever like it's that same kind of thing or um the way that you know relatedly like these people talk about sharia law or whatever like they they always speak about it as this kind of omnipresent threat that's kind of more cultural than it is political actually now that i think of it i guess the popular base of support the mass movement that the movie depicts is you know sex and dancing and tv cartoons right right. and somehow the communists are using that to sweep into power and that and that speaks to another like deep structure thing about the right which is that the right is if you've read your cory robin you know it's always a response in some way to the left i mean the right is about it's animated by wanting to neutralize the left, which is what gives it its kind of energy, but also what gives it its rampant incoherence and kind of ideological confusion. So I don't think the makers of this film, I mean, I don't think in any meaningful sense, you know, the rhetoric they use is that there's like a communist takeover that's like impending within like months or years if we're not careful. But really what this is about is like 
figuring out a way that they can police and discipline American society and neutralize kind of like cultural tendencies and just like things that they don't like within American society. It's got very little to do with like the Soviet Union or Cuba or whatever. Why would they depict the communist threat though as like an, an external occupation? Why, why couldn't they depict it as people in the United States actually turning into communists? Because it's more rhetorically effective to sort of colonize the idea that there's this authentic thing, the United States, uh-huh. and it's being threatened from abroad. I mean, this may be a bit of a tangent, but it's the same reason why so many liberals today are obsessed with, you know, all the Russia stuff, because they want to cling to this idea that, like, the American political system didn't produce Donald Trump. Mm. It's incapable of doing so because it's inherently good. So you mm-hmm. can only explain it by way of, like, some external thing. And I think the same thing is is true in a lot of Cold War red baiting, like, you know, as this film kind of depicts the threat is presented as an external one, but it's much more about policing what the authentic culture can can be. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an atheist. <laughs> I, I, you know, favorite fictional character, um, um, Jesus. <laughs> so that's Will coming out, I guess, as some sort of Bolshevik version of Ricky Gervais. <laughs> well, I guess the point that I'm trying to lead to is, uh, even though this is technically like a Christian propaganda film, and, you know, Jesus is mentioned a lot, the actual teachings of Jesus are rarely mentioned. Like, Jesus is just sort of brought up as like, he's our guy. And, you know, it's it's terrible that we're going to have to stomp on his picture. And, and my favorite part was uh, was where they're like, um, you know, and if we don't if we don't keep God alive here, he'll just go to some other country. He, he so literally I, says, that. I love that. They're I love it's their zero sum. Their vision of Christianity is so parochial. It like only applies to the United States and probably only certain parts of the United States. I got to say, at least communism was internationalist. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a limited supply of God's grace and, and we've got to hoard it all for ourselves. <laughs> But I think it goes to show, no matter what your friends, the new atheists will say, how in something like this, how unimportant religion actually is. If he didn't have Jesus, he would just have some other reason for, you know, hating sex and hating licentious culture. Like he doesn't need religion as a justification, but it's just the convenient one that he has right now. Today we have the drive-in theater. Have you considered what goes on down there? It's nothing more than a spawning house for sex. What's shown on the screen is nothing but raw sex and violence. And there's no supervision. Another question. I'd like to know what's your attitude toward dancing. You say, preacher, times have changed. I don't see anything wrong with dancing today. Dancing is just as wrong as it's always been. You say, what's wrong with it? It's the front door to adultery. The thing that started on the dance floor is expected to be finished in a parked car or a motel somewhere. I actually think this film, another reason that it's relevant in the present day in some ways is because one of the memes that's really trendy on the right today is this idea of cultural Marxism or in the Jordan Peterson formulation, postmodern neo-Marxism. Mm-hmm. It goes back to like, if you dig deep enough, there's like crazy kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about the Frankfurt School and stuff like that. But... I've always been fascinated by the idiom of cultural Marxism because I think it's the way that conservatives, they fuse together all of the things they find distasteful about the left and they attribute them to kind of a single force. And so like Jordan Peterson can talk about postmodernism and Marxism being synonymous, even though like he's really kind of conflating 
things about various kinds of identity politics that maybe he doesn't like with left-wing redistributive goals and things like that. And it's kind of as if this is all one. Mm -hmm. And this film very much does that too. You know, so it's kind of like you get us replacing uh, God with the state, uh, which is related to people having premarital sex, you know, which is related to watching too much TV. And, you know, it's, it's all kind of... It's all kind of together and, you know, not liking capitalism enough. And so this got me thinking about this kind of longstanding, frankly, gripe I've had with conservatism, just this kind of basic intellectual incoherence that it's struck me for some time is kind of at the heart of like the conservative animus to the left, which is, you know, on the one hand, they say the left is this authoritarian thing. It's like all left-wing ideas kind of tend towards this kind of collectivism, this heavy-handed control over social life. So, you know, death panels, you know, mm. all the rest of it. But then the other the other problem with the left, which seems completely like they're accusing the left of the opposite thing, is that it's it's too licentious, it's too kind of open, it's too tolerant. It's just kind of this outlook that lacks kind of an anchor or a moral compass. It's like a weather vane. Whatever's fashionable, whatever sort of liberalized attitudes become trendy, it just kind of embraces them. Well, that's um, true. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's really passive and conflict diverse. It can't be both, okay? You know, there's a book by Peter Hitchens called The Abolition of Britain, which is kind of his critique of Tony Blair and New Labour. And it's a hideously reactionary book, although quite a fun read. And um, it's got essentially this exact same critique. He's arguing that New Labour, which was explicitly a repudiation of socialism, he's arguing that it's actually the natural kind of continuation of socialism. It's basically Stalinism because it's heavy-handed and centralized and top-down, but it's also like way too tolerant and it's like making the world safe for all these, you know, same-sex marriage and all these kind of things. Like, And it's like... Which is it? <laughs> well, I think this movie synthesizes the two things quite well because you've got this this communist bureaucracy <laughs> which systematically one by one goes around and destabilizes people's marriages and and makes kids step on pictures of Jesus and I guess <laughs> probably turns people gay. Who, you know, we didn't see that in the movie. And so it's perfect. <laughs> this, this movie is the most coherent conservative document we have. Just to further reinforce my point, this really is like a long-standing feature of the right and as evidence for that i have this thing i found uh several years ago during the 2015 canadian election one of my favorite conservative mps larry miller whose twitter feed is kind of half i don't know sort of breitbart-esque crazy like far-right conservative stuff and like half stuff about like you know oh congrats to this minor hockey team for like winning you know because yeah. he's like this rural conservative mp you know, so he posted, uh, he tweeted out, it's, you know, tweet was deleted after uh, we wrote this story, but he tweeted out this thing, rules for communist revolution, you know, as kind of a warning, because I guess communist oh, I'll, revolution. I'll have to make some notes. Yeah, it was, I guess communist revolution was kind of on offer during, during the 2015 election. This document goes along, it's like, this has been a, a meme on the right for a long time. And in fact, in fact, J. Edgar Hoover, when he was the director of FBI, actually testified about this document and said there were no sources for it that you know, kind of confirmed its authenticity. But, I mean, basically, 
the image brands itself is like this secret document that was found, I guess, by American forces when they were like excavating the ruins of Berlin or something. I can't quite remember the backstory. It's something like that, you know, which kind of reveals the, you know, what the communist plot is. And so this conservative MP just like shared it thinking it was real. Sounds like the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yeah, it's exactly like the protocols of the elders of Zion. I'll read a few of them here. So it's things like the corruption of the young by getting them interested in sex, possibly with sexy books or a night out at the theater. Uh, the breakdown. <laughs> night of, out at the theater. <laughs> night out at the theater. Watch out. The breakdown of the old moral virtues, honesty, and sobriety. I strikes in vital industries. So we've moved pretty. I like that it only takes us a few moves to get from a night out at the theater to strikes in vital industries. Like, it is a slippery slope. I like how we go from just like you know a middle class suburb in the 21st century to Weimar Germany in the 20s in like a few in a few moves uh then the registration of all firearms um and you know there's you know it, go- it goes on but like is I, this in any particular order that it happens i mean that was just the order that we cherry picked them for mm-hmm. for the reporting but if you I look like it to up, think chronologically that would be how the the <laughs> communist uprising would happen if you if you look up 12 rules for communist revolution on google images you can read it yourself so this has been for decades, like there have been, you know, conservatives appealing to this as if this is some kind of authentic document that's giving the game away. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's like, oh, it starts with, you know, you know, people getting a little liberal, you know, children, I don't know, children, uh, you know, not respecting their parents and their betters and, you know, little Billy mouthing off to the teacher in homeroom. And then it ends with strikes in vital industries and the overthrow of the Republic by the Bolshevik vanguard. I mean, it's incredible. Both of those would seem to suggest like a disrespect for authority. Do you think that could be something that uh, links some of these points? I think the only way that you can make this coherent, because I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm owning conservatism with its own logic by pointing out that it's incoherent, you know? Mm. Um, Yeah, this podcaster completely disproved, you know, completely destroyed conservatism with one simple take. But I think that the incoherence that I'm speaking about, like, it has to be explained. And the way that you explain that, or certainly the way I explain it, is with Corey Robbins' kind of idea of conservatism, that fundamentally what brings it together is the defense of authority and hierarchy, Mm. wherever it's present. So uh, whether that's kind of in the home before second wave feminism, whether that's on the plantation, whether that's, you know, in the modern workplace, whether that's in how wealth is stratified in our societies. It's all about the preservation of hierarchy and the deepening of hierarchy. So yes, I think that is kind of what brings it together. Well, you know me, I'm a, I'm a, a, you're, a, you're a right, I'm, I'm a right leaning guy. And I watch my favorite movie, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses <laughs> Do? And I see this communist uprising, which is very hierarchical, very authoritarian. And I think, what's the problem? <laughs> It is pretty funny that the the two realities it's depicting... They're the same. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, okay, so... One's more violent. So there's a lot of murder in the communist one, but I mean, it's like the idyllic thing that that's counterposed with is this thing where, like, community is rigidly enforced, 
the things you're not allowed to do are like at one point there's two young women driving in the car and it's like uh joyriding joyriding and they're it's just two friends just having a conversation and the problem with joyriding is it keeps you from going to church right in their utopian world you're not allowed to watch tv right not allowed to dance norms are enforced about sex you're not allowed to watch tv norms are enforced like basically down the barrel of a gun but instead of by state bureaucrats it's just by the local pastor like like that's the what's at stake politically here is whether the authoritarianism is enforced by the state or by private actors inside that old rundown schoolhouse they excelled us by city block there they studied a masterpiece of a book the mcguffey reader in the mcguffey readers our parents were not only taught to read they were taught character virtues taught to my father at home and church were taught in the mcguffey reader such is not the case in many present-day classrooms many modern teachers think it more necessary to teach sex than the three r's boys and girls As I have discussed with you many times before, I personally believe that premarital sex is necessary. And now we will go on to discuss seven erotic zones of passion in every woman. The first one is, and they go on to teach worse things. Estes Perkle does end the film with, I think, a pretty persuasive sales pitch, and maybe that's how we'll uh, uh, we'll lead out. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say we had another Patreon episode last week of the West Wing live debate. And we and we may do some we may do a West Wing extravaganza on some at some point, but we did want to just give a little taster. Frankly, I don't see how that well could ever run dry. <laughs> uh, but so you might want to you might want to check that out. But we do believe in uh, civil discourse and you know hearing from all sides. So we'd like to play you out a bit with Reverend Perkle's his pitch. Uh, so now watch this drive and take it away, Reverend. Just remember, Judy, that God loved your mother. And he loves you equally. Judy, will you kneel with me at the altar? Now Jesus said, but as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Are you willing today to receive Jesus as your personal savior? I've sinned against my mother's wishes. Dear God, I know I've offended you. Jesus, please take me back. Yes. Yes, Lord. Yes. God, when Mother asked me to turn to you, I laughed at her. I was wrong, Lord. Please listen to me. Please take me back. Forgive me of my sins. God, please. Please let my mother know that I've come home. I know all things are possible to you. God, save me. Save me. Yes. Jesus said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons or the daughters of God. Are you willing tonight to receive him as your personal Savior?
Yes, sir. You won't be ashamed for the whole world to know that he's yours. Oh, sir. Oh, sir. Have you invited him in your heart? Do you have peace? Do you have joy? Can you thank him for saving you? Thank God. If you died now, where would you go? Go straight to God. Thank you. It's wonderful. All right, let's thank him together. Father, we thank you for saving another soul. We thank you that Judy has come to know you as her personal Savior. And may we know from this night forth the joy and victory that only Jesus can give. Thank you for saving Judy. In Jesus' name.